Clinton Portis was a running back that played for nine seasons in the NFL, mostly with the Washington Redskins. When he was 22, he signed what was at the time the richest contract for an NFL running back in NFL history. Over his nine seasons, he made $43 million. He was a frequent guest on MTV Cribs. We may be the only church in America that has a reference to MTV Cribs. He was a frequent guest on MTV Cribs, and he would frequently show off all of his many illustrious homes. And in these homes, he would often show off, he would always show off these enormous garages that would be filled with cars that were the finest automobiles that money could buy that would be totally tricked out with enormous rims that cost more than many of our homes cost. Uh, Even his teammates would talk about how you couldn't keep up with Clinton Portis, even for an NFL player, even for their lifestyles. Many of them would talk about how they couldn't keep up with him. And when you would watch these episodes of Clinton Portis, you would see that his homes wouldn't just be him. They would be filled with friends. They would be filled with people and they would be filled he would always have a girlfriend with him sometimes two or three girlfriends with him it seemed as though it was apparent that Clinton Portis was living the life that every red-blooded American boy dreamed of living and that he was the man that everybody else wanted to be with spend time with He would even rent vacation villas and throw these parties and he would bring all of his friends with him. He would rent rent restaurants and throw parties and he would have all of his friends there. But the well ran dry. Because of some poor financial advisors, some swindlers, Portis was swindled out of the majority of his fortune and he had gambled away the rest and spent it on opulent living. And so in 2015, he filed for bankruptcy. And guess what happened? His girlfriends left. All of his friends abandoned him. There were no more parties. There were no more vacation villas. There was loneliness. There was loneliness. And so what was apparent is that they weren't his friends at all. That the women didn't love Clinton Portis. They loved what he could do for them. The buddies didn't love Clinton Portis. They loved the lifestyle that Clinton Portis could provide for them. And you know what I'm afraid of? What I'm afraid of is that many people, particularly in cultural Christianity in the West, have that kind of relationship with God. That we don't love God. We like the idea of heaven. And we like the idea of forgiveness. And we like the idea of streets of gold. 
and we like the idea of pearly gates, and we like the idea of eternal life, but if those things were stripped away, and the only thing that we had was God, I'm not certain that he would be enough. That we may not love God as much as we like the trappings around God. So brothers and sisters, this morning I'm preaching a sermon that the Lord has used to reveal all kinds of cracks of hypocrisy in my own soul and in my own heart. I'm, I'm preaching from a text that the Lord has used this week to undo me in all kinds of ways and to reveal in my own heart all of these areas of nastiness and ugliness and these areas of hypocrisy that I didn't see, these blind spots that, that I didn't know were there. And I am actually praying that it wrecks our church and wrecks you in some of the same ways that it wrecks me. So would you turn with me? to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22. So the question that I want you to be asking yourself this morning is do I love God, do I love God, or do I love forgiveness? Do I love God, or do I love heaven? Do I love God or do I love gold? Because I believe one of those loves is perverse and one of those loves is beautiful. One of those loves is perverse and one of those loves is beautiful. When you get to Matthew chapter 22, would you stand with me? We're going to be in this same text two weeks in a row. I intended to preach all of this this week, and uh, I decided to not keep you here for two weeks and instead to preach this for in two weeks in a row. So <laughs> you're welcome. All right. All right. So Matthew chapter 22, we're going to begin in verse 34 and go through verse 40. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You may be seated. So if you remember where we are, we're in the midst of a smear campaign on the Tuesday of Passion Week, the Tuesday before Jesus will be crucified on Friday. Last week we saw as the Sadducees, uh, one of the two parties on the Sanhedrin had come and to try their hand at pinning Jesus down with a difficult question. And they had failed and failed miserably on a question about the resurrection. And so now the Pharisees are ready to come. Last time they had sent their students to question Jesus and now they have decided this ain't the work for children. This isn't work for boys. And so now they don't send their students. Now they send their expert, okay? Now they send in the big guns. This time they send in Matlock, okay? They send in a lawyer. 
Now, these were people, these were law-loving folk. These were men that loved the law supremely, more than anything else in the world. Their wives are giving birth. They're over in the corner reading the law, okay? They love the law more than their babies. They love the law more than their wives. Like, they love the law. And so to have one of them who is set apart from within that crew as a lawyer, like, that is a PhD law dude, okay? Like, so this is expert Pharisee, supreme Pharisee, sensei Pharisee, okay? So they send in this guy to come in and to ask Jesus a question. Now, we're not given a ton of information about him, but what Matthew tells us is that his heart is not good. It tells us that he has come in to test Jesus. Now, when we think of tests, we typically don't have warm, fuzzy, bunny rabbit feelings about tests, but we also don't think malicious tests, right? But what we should understand Matthew saying is having a malicious intent, because this is the very same word that Matthew uses all the way back in Matthew chapter 4 to describe Satan, when Satan in the middle of the wilderness tempts Jesus. So this is the same word that he says that Satan tests Jesus in the wilderness when he takes him out there, okay? So this is a satanic test, a satanic temptation of Jesus, a satanic testing of Jesus. So this is a malicious, this is, a, this is not a good dude. However he's going about this, whatever he's doing about this, Matthew wants to make sure that we understand this is not a sweet fellow, okay? This is not a good lawyer. This is a swindler. This is a bad dude. And so he comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, which commandment is the greatest commandment of all the commandments? What is commandment numero uno? What is the top commandment? Now, what you need to understand is that the Pharisees had, had counted all the commandments up, because remember, they loved the law, and they had come up with a number of 613 commandments. That they had numbered all the commandments, and that in the law of, of God, in the Old Testament, that there were 613 commandments, and there was a very common conversation in Jesus' day to kind of weigh out the commandments. And so they were already weighing them out, that some of the commandments were, were heavier, and some of the commandments were lighter. And you can imagine that whenever you're weighing out the commandments and some are, are heavier and some are lighter, it's only a matter of time until someone says, well, okay, well, which one's the heaviest? Which one is the heaviest? And so it's a common conversation in the day of Jesus to ask the question, which conversation or, or which law is the very heaviest? Which is the biggest commandment of them all. And so it's, it's very likely that there's a number of schools of thought. A number of rabbis would have thought a number of different things. Some would have thought the Sabbath was the heaviest of the commandments. Some would have thought that obeying your mother and your father was the heaviest of the commandments. Some would have thought that uh, having no other gods before God was the heaviest of the commandments. And so there's a, a, a number of different positions. And so it's likely that the rabbi is pinning Jesus down for, or trying to pin Jesus down for at least two different reasons. And there's two different reasons that he's asking this specific question. This lawyer's asking Jesus for two specific reasons. First, he's probably trying to do, because Jesus is going to have to pick a side. Jesus is going to have to pick a side. And remember, they're wanting to turn the crowd on Jesus. 
They're wanting to turn the crowd on Jesus. They're wanting to hurt Jesus' popularity ratings, approval ratings, so that they can have him and ultimately arrest him and execute him. And that they've been totally unsuccessful. So at this point, any win is a win, right? Like, if they can get any win at all, if they can not make Jesus look like a genius at this point, like, that would be a win. And so by making Jesus pick a law, they're going to have other people that are going to disagree with him. They're going to have other people that are going to say, well, no, I think it's actually honor your parents, or I think it's the Sabbath. And so they're, they're going to create divisions here. They're going to create divisions among popular schools of thought by just making Jesus pick one. I think the main reason, the most likely reason that the, that the lawyer is asking this question, though, is that the most common accusation of the Pharisees against Jesus is that Jesus has come to abolish the law. That Jesus has come to do away with the law of Moses. If you remember all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is most likely a compilation of things that Jesus is teaching repeatedly, very often, Jesus even addresses this straightforwardly, doesn't he? He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right? Like Jesus says this straightforwardly. And so maybe it's in the mind of this lawyer that Jesus will just say, look, you don't have to do any of them. None of them are a big deal. You don't have to sweat it. And that he can be in the temple teaching this stuff and that the crowd will hear it and think, blasphemer, blasphemer. This man doesn't love the law. And that he can undermine the authority of Jesus. Now, we see again, for a third consecutive time, Jesus respond without deliberation and with great directness, don't we? Jesus again responds with these great quandaries, these great questions of the day, these elephant in the room type questions. Jesus again responds without deliberation and with great directness, according to the apostle or the evangelist's uh, account. And I think even in the fact that Jesus responds to this question, we learn something. And we learn something that speaks into something that I hear said very often in the life of the church. You know, I hear spoken very often that in God's eyes, all sins are the same. I hear, I hear that spoken all the time. And I think the reason that I hear that so often is that we tend now in the 21st century, even among Christians, to get the majority of our theology from church signs, cliches, pop culture, and Christian t-shirts, not the Bible. We get the majority of our theology from church signs, pop culture, pop Christ, contemporary Christian music, um, Christian t-shirts, and Christian cliches, not the Bible. But the, the problem is, is that when we say that, that all sins are the same in God's eyes, is that it's just not true. And the fact that Jesus answers this question at all shows us that that isn't true. That isn't true. Because when this man comes and he asks the question, what is the greatest commandment of them all? He's asking, what is the greatest duty that a, a child of God has to God? What is the greatest duty, the greatest responsibility that the people of God have to God himself? Jesus could say, well, actually, all, all of the law of God is equal in God's eyes, couldn't he? He could have said that, but Jesus doesn't say that. He could have said, actually, if you break one, you've broken them all. Jesus doesn't say that. 
He could have said, if you break one commandment, you've broken all of them evenly. You've broken all of them equally. They're all weighted evenly. Jesus doesn't say that at all, does he? Jesus gives an answer. Jesus is going to respond that there is a weight system. There is a weightiness to different laws, that the laws are not weighted evenly. You see, I think what we're, where, we get this, where we get off on this is what we miss is the fact that, yes, if you have an impure motive, if you have the most minuscule impure motive behind whatever, if you do a good thing with a wrong motive in the eyes of God, that is owed condemnation in the eyes of God. That that warrants, that is, the wages of that sin is death in the eyes of God. That you are now, in the eyes of a holy God, warranted sin, uh, an, et- an eternal separation from God in hell. But did you know in hell, the Bible teaches there are differing degrees of punishment? And did you know that in heaven, and then, and then we think, but, and on the flip side of that, that, that Jesus says to the thief on the cross, on this day you will be with me in paradise, so that like deathbed confessions are the exact same as Paul who walked through a faithful life without, in grace and, and lived and suffered for the gospel and lived and endured and did all those things and in, for, the, for the sake of Christ and walked throughout his life in faithful obedience. And we think that in in heaven, him and the thief on the cross are gonna be the same. Did you know that in the Bible, there are also differing degrees of reward, that the experience of the thief and the experience of Paul in heaven are gonna be profoundly different? The Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that. And that's why last week I was asking you what you knew about heaven from the Bible, right? We can't get our theology from church signs. We can't get our theology from church signs, right? Because what Jesus is teaching us, what Jesus is teaching us is that there are differing degrees of sin and there are differing degrees of judgment and there are differing degrees of reward and there are differing degrees of condemnation. And the subject matter that we're talking about this morning is the very gravest. The, the subject matter that we're talking about this morning is the very severest. It's the very heaviest. It's the very weightiest. And so what we're talking about this morning, brothers and sisters, is probably something that you've heard about a hundred times. It's probably something that many of you could quote by heart. It would be easy for you to check out, but I bet that you need to hear this anew. I bet that you need to hear this with fresh ears and with fresh eyes, because this is your great duty, your greatest responsibility before God. This is what you will be held as a child of God, as a man of God, or as a child that is separated from God. This is what you will give the greatest account before God for all eternity. This is what the greatest reward and the greatest judgment is dependent upon, is these words of Jesus Christ, because he says, this is your greatest responsibility before God. God. And what does he say? What does he say? Let's read it together. Let's read it together. He says in verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first 
commandment. In case there was any question, Jesus comes back and he bookends it with an exclamation point because they ain't got those in Greek. This is the great and foremost commandment. Underline it. This is your greatest responsibility before God. You will give an account for the severity of your life and how you live this out. That's what Jesus says. What's unique about this is in Jesus' answer, he answers this in a way that is very ordinary to them, but very unusual to us. Very ordinary to them, but very unusual to them, to us. Because why? He commands love. He commands love. Now, if I were to come to you, <coughs> <coughs> And I were to tell you, you must love him. You would say, well, I don't even know him. As a matter of fact, I think this is the greatest difficulty. We're going to talk about this next week. I think this is the greatest difficulty we have with the second greatest commandment, loving your neighbor. In the Western civilization, in, in America, in the 20, in all the baggage we bring to the table, we think, well, I've got to get to know her a little bit. Love is abstract to us. I've got to fall in love with you. You've got to earn my love. Not only do I have to fall in love with you, I've got to stay in love with you. You've got to earn my love, and then you've got to keep on earning my love. You've got to keep on deserving my love, right? And so when Jesus says that the greatest commandment is that you must love God, we think, Jesus, what do you mean? You're going to command me to love someone? How can you command an emotion? How can you command a feeling? How can you command something abstract? But there's a word in there. There's a word in there that we can blow right by, that we can take for granted that they didn't take for granted, and it's the word your. Your. Your God. Your God. You see, Israel was nothing apart from God. They were nothing apart from God. You know, Israel didn't go looking for God. Israel didn't go looking for God. Israel didn't invent God. Israel didn't build God. Israel didn't carve God. Israel didn't make God. Israel didn't, in, didn't draw up God. That's how all the other nations got their God. Do you know how Israel got God? God came to them. God came to them. God came to them and he said, you aren't like any other nation. You won't have a great military. You don't have a great king. You aren't a big nation. You aren't wealthy. You aren't powerful. There's nothing special about you. I want to be your God. I want to love you. I want to set you apart. I want to make you mighty. I want to make you wonderful. I want to make you something that is extraordinarily different than any other nation apart because you have me. You have my provision. You have my power. And I am countless in power. I am countless in glory. I am countless in worry. I am matchless among anything that you have ever beheld. I will be your God and you will be my people. You see, God obligated himself first to Israel in love. And he said, your only responsibility is to just love me back. All of the law that they had 
only existed because God had loved them first. The only reason they had the law of Moses, the only reason they had the revelation of God was because God had come to them. Because God had revealed himself to them. And so when Jesus reminds them that they are commanded to love their God back, they are reminded of all of these things. They are reminded of all of these things. That he is their God and he is matchless in wonder, matchless in glory, matchless in purity. And he has performed over and over and over evidence that he is to be unmatched. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, who are you? Who are you? Did you love God first or did he love you first? Who is Christ to you? You were bankrupt in your sin. You were dead in your transgressions. You were not seeking after God. God came looking for you. God came looking for you. And so if your response is how narcissistic can God be? If your response is how could God possibly command me to to love him? How can that be a demand and an expectation on me? You don't know the gospel yet. You don't understand the gospel yet. You don't understand the glory and the grace of the revelation of God. You don't understand the glory and the grace of the law yet because you were an orphan. You were an orphan in your sin. You were hopeless and bankrupt in your own wickedness and God left heaven and came looking for you. And he came looking for you so that you could be delivered from your own deserved death because he wanted you and he pursued you and he is matchless in power and you are matchless in wretchedness. And he came looking for you and he said, hey, I love you and I want you and I am willing to obligate myself to you. I will be your God if you will just come and be my son or my daughter and love me back. You see, to love God, to love God is to realize first his love for you and to respond to that love in recognition of that love, it is the only rational, logical, reasonable response. It is the only rational, reasonable response because you realize, you realize that is my only hope. That is my only choice. That is my only joy. That is my only shot. Give me him, man. Give me him. You see, in our community, and even within our church, there is a perversion of the gospel. There is a perversion of the gospel, and it is is so close to the true gospel. It is so close to the true gospel. But there is a, a perversion of the gospel that looks like the gospel, but in fact, it denies the power of the gospel. Here we we call it the forgiveness gospel. 
and it has been perpetuated through the generations, and it has been preached by often well-meaning brothers from the pulpits, and it has been shared door to door by often well-meaning Christians who want people to come into the kingdom of heaven and want to see people baptized, and, and it goes like this, Jesus, that, 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 that you are a sinner, and you are going to hell. And Jesus came so that you won't have to go to hell. And you need forgiveness. Don't you want forgiveness? Be forgiven. Be forgiven. Go to heaven. And VBS after VBS after VBS, we have said, you're going to hell. Don't you want to be forgiven? Don't you want to go to heaven? And after year after year after year, we have said, no, I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I want forgiveness. Yes, I want to go to heaven. Raise my hand. Yes, yes. Revival after revival after revival. We have said, no, I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I want forgiveness. Give me forgiveness. Give me forgiveness. Give me forgiveness. Door after door after door, it has been said, yes, I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I want forgiveness. Yes, yes, give me that. But brothers and sisters, as well-intentioned and as well-meaning as that is, what is missing? What is missing? The great commandment is missing. The great commandment is missing. We never told them that they have to love God. We never told them that they have to actually love God. It is to my shame. And I have repented and wept. And I've spent many years of my ministry pleading with people for forgiveness and not asking them to love God. But you see, I can love my daddy's money. I can love my daddy's house. And I can hate the thought of being thrown out of my daddy's house and not having a house to live in and not love my daddy. I can love the privileges of my daddy's inheritance and not love my daddy. That is the prodigal son, isn't it? It is entirely possible, brothers and sisters, to love sin and forgiveness and not God. And that is why there have been so many people baptized, dumped, that can sit in their homes and feel no obligation or responsibility to the kingdom of God or to God himself because they don't love God. They don't actually love God. They wanted relief and forgiveness for their sins they didn't have any passion for God himself. Because in our well-intentioned passion to bring them into the kingdom of God, we've abandoned 
the first and greatest commandment. They must, we must love God. You see what separates the kingdom gospel from the forgiveness gospel is that in the kingdom of gospel, yes, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him can and will have everlasting life forever. And they will be kept because they will be differentiated from the world because they will love him back. They will love him back and they will love him back and it will be evidenced by an obedient life marked with the spirit filling. Not a perfect life, not a perfect life, but an obedient life marked by a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will come and they will desire to be discipled. They will come and they will desire to improve and to grow, not because they are legalists, not because they are small-minded, but because they want more of God. They want more of God. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, you come in every week looking at your watch, trying to get out. Or do you come in every week saying, I want God, I love God. Do you love God? Do you love God? Have you embraced the fullness of the kingdom gospel? Iron City, we cannot settle for less than the true kingdom gospel that embraces the fullness of the great commandment and the second greatest commandment and the entirety of the full revelation of God's word. So maybe this morning you're, wanting, you're evaluating in your own heart. You're evaluating in your own heart. Do I love God? Do I love God? I think there's three questions that you can ask yourself. I think there's three questions that you can ask yourself. I think they come from the alls that he gives us here. The alls that he gives us here. He says that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the word all, isn't that what ramps us up from hard to radical? Not, not with part, not with some, not with most, with all. All is the radical word, but the Christian faith is a radical and difficult faith, brothers and sisters. And there's, there's, this is going to land in two different ways among us this morning. It's going to land in two different ways. For some of you, you're going to come to these questions and you're going you're to hear these questions and you're going to realize, I don't love God. I've never loved God. I've, I've loved forgiveness one time. I, I, I wanted to stay in my sin and I, I loved uh, a message of the gospel, but it really denied its power. And so you're going to be undone this morning. I want you to come and be awakened to true salvation because it is more glorious and it is truly saving and it is life-giving and it will bring you into a thriving relationship with God that will last throughout the ages far outweighing anything that you've ever known before because you're probably really tired this morning. You're really tired because what you had was an imposter. Some of you, you do love God. You really do love God. And you're gonna be like me this week. And these questions are gonna undo you and they're gonna wreck you in good ways. And they're gonna call you to, to deeper levels of Christian faithfulness and, and Christian walking and Christian living. So do you love God? First question. First question. Is God the center of your happiness? Is God the center and the source of your happiness? He says, love God with all of 
your heart. This is actually almost a synonym. Heart and mind are almost synonymous words here. So this isn't like the, the bubbly happiness here like, the, like we, we typically think about. This is, this is a thinking happiness. This is a, a committed happiness. This is, this is joyful, joyful living. See, see, we typically think about happiness in terms of day by day. Am I happy today? Am I not happy today? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about where do you go time after time after time as your source of joy? Where, when, when, when you need to find joy, where does your mind escape? Where does your mind escape? Does it escape to your marriage? Does it escape to your children? Does it escape to your, your savings account? Does it escape to your career and your ambition? Does it escape to your future? Does it escape to your, your college ambition? Does it escape to who you hope to be or hope you, who you want it to be or who you, who you want to marry? Or does it escape to God? You see, there's a reason that Paul tells us not to set our minds on the things of this earth. Because time and again, we go to the things of this earth and if we keep going to the things of this earth, it's like trying to make a square meal out of poison. We go and we try to make a square meal out of poison and do you know what will happen? We will vomit. We will vomit. Because our bodies will reject it. And when we vomit, our bodies are, are doing that because our bodies are trying to be good to us. Our bodies are trying to tell us that that is not nutritious. In fact, that will destroy us. That will kill us. But many of the people that I know are wretchedly sad. Many of the people that I know are hopelessly in despair. Many of the people that I know are hopelessly anxious. They are terribly fluctuating in the way that they think and in the way that they feel. And it's because they keep going to the world and they keep going to their marriage and they keep going to their children and they keep going to their career and they keep going to their money and they keep going to what they wanted to be but it really wasn't. They keep going to what they hoped it would become but it never did. They keep going to all, some of them good things, some of them proper things, some of them things that God intended for them to be but it was not what God is. It was really things of earth, gifts from God, but not God himself. And it was like trying to make a square mill out of poison and the despair in your life and the anxiety in your life and the depression in your life and the hardship in your life and the misery in your life that keeps flailing up over and over and again is your life vomiting, saying there is something more. There is something more. There is someone better. There is someone better. And I'm not flatlining everything. I know there are, there are more complex situations and there are, there are bigger issues. I'm not flatlining. I'm saying there are instances this way. Time and again, the only and supreme source of joy, the only one that you can trust, the only one that can handle that responsibility, the only one that was built for it is not your children, is not your husband, is not your career, is not your savings account. It is God, God Almighty. Is He your source of joy? Is He your source of happiness? Brothers and sisters, He is the only one that can handle it. 
He is the only one that won't turn your square meal into poison. Do you love him? Do you love him? Are you trying to find him, all of your joy, all of your delight, all of your pleasure in him? It says not only to love him with all of your heart, but to love him with all of your soul. In the Bible, that refers to the immaterial part of a man, the immaterial part of a person. That's a hard thing to measure, isn't it? It's a hard thing to measure the immaterial part of a person. But it's not so hard because the immaterial part of a person has a way of forking itself out. See, the immaterial part of a person is the altar of your soul, the altar of your heart. It's whatever it is that you prioritize most in your life. And whatever you prioritize most inwardly will certainly find its way outwardly. So a way for us to ask that question is, is what is the center of your life? What is the center of your life? So look at your calendar. Look at your calendar. Is God in the margins of your calendar or is God at the center of your calendar? Are your children at the center of your calendar? Is your job at the center of your calendar? Is ball at the center of your calendar? Is money at the center of your calendar? Is ambition at the center of your calendar? Or is God at the center of your calendar? We have a lot of things that we love in theory, a lot of things that we love philosophically, but do we actually, realistically, honestly, and truly love God most? I know this is hard, y'all. I know this is God. I told you, I'm not preaching up here today. I'm preaching down here. Look at your money. Look at your money. We look at our time and we look at our money. Surely we know what we love most inwardly. Are you generously living so that you can live out the second greatest commandment and love your neighbor as yourself? Are you living so that you can support the great commission efforts of your church? Are you living so that you can financially make sure that you're living on mission? Is God at the center? If you look at your ambitions and you look at your career, you don't need to give up your career, but at the center of your career is God there. Is God there. At the center of your parenting and the conversations that you're having with your children, are you talking as much about God as you are about batting averages? Or are you pushing God to the margins? Are you going to get around to that someday because you have all the math homework to get to tonight? You see, I think in our day, we so fear legalism that we have pushed God to the outskirts. See, we, we, we talk about, you know, we can't do church attendance now. We can't talk about church attendance as being a big deal and because we, if, we, we, if, if we mandate church attendance now, we're being legalistic because, but look, there, there's a difference, brothers and sisters. There's a difference. And you guys know, man, I'm not a guilt preacher. I'm a grace preacher. You guys have heard me talk about that over and again. But if we say that, that church attendance is necessary for you to get God's love, that is legalism. But can I tell you something? That if you love God, you will come to God's house. That is not legalism. That is common sense. 
That is the outworking. Because you know, if you love your mom and dad, you will go and see them. Right? If, your ki- if you love your kids, you will be around your kids. That's how it happens. Look at your calendar. Look at your budget. Look at those things. Ask your budget. Ask your calendar. Do I love God? Is he really the center of my soul? Is he really the center? Brothers and sisters, I know this is difficult. I know this is painful. A final question. Do I love God with all of my mind? Do I love God with all of my mind? You know, I travel quite a bit. As often as I'm away, you know what I find myself always thinking about most? Home. Home. Matter of fact, Andrew and I, we were away not long ago. And he and I were both sitting there, I think, at a conference that we were at, and we were both saying, man, Megan would really like this. And Tasha, she would really like this. Because that, that's what we, and, and Aaron and I have had the same conversation, and John and I have had the same conversation, is you're there and you're away, and you look forward to these trips for so long, and then when you're away, you're thinking, man, Megan would love this, and she would love this, and Gracie Kate, she would like this, and all you can think about is, is home and, and having them there and getting them things and taking them back. That should be a picture of how we are with the Lord. We are residents here, but we are citizens there. We are residents here, but we are citizens there. And there should be an obsessiveness of our minds that are captivated with the things of God that just can't get over God. And so wherever we are, whether we're playing golf or we're at work or we're fishing, all of those things are fine. I'm not saying get rid of any of those things, but wherever we are, whatever we're doing, there should be an obsessiveness of the mind mulling over the glories of God, the manifold glories of God that just can't get over him. So that whether you're with a colleague or you're with a playing partner or you're with your fishing buddy, all of a sudden you're fishing, man, he's wearing, and that guy's talking about stuff. And then all of a sudden you just spurt out, man, can you believe what it says in Psalm 96? And he's like, what? Right? You should be, there should be an obsessiveness in your mind. There's enough, y'all. If you just step outside of your front steps and just look at the sky, there's enough to keep you there staring, thinking about the glories of God for the rest of the night. And we haven't even gotten to the specific uh, revelation yet. Our minds ought to be captivated by God. But whatever it is that you think about in your mind more than God, that's an idol. That's an idol. Not a child. Not a husband. Not a job. Not a boyfriend. Not an ambition. Not a concern. An idol. How many idols do you have? brothers and sisters. Do you know what mine has been? The church. The church. This church. And what happens is good things come into our lives. Good things. And they take the place of God himself in ways that are almost indiscernible. 
so much so that it begins to rob our affections for God himself and replace our passion for God and our love for God. And it begins to take our hearts off center so that our calendars change, so that our budgets change, so that our, our, our happiness changes, our joys change. I think it all starts with our minds. It all starts with our minds. And whenever you begin to lose your mind and your mind stops being captivated by the manifold glories of God and the goodness of God and the love of God and it begins to go on the idols, I will, you will begin to find anxiety taking over in all of these areas in your life. Let me tell you how I know. Brothers and sisters, this is an issue of life and death. This is an issue of the greatest severity. This is an issue of greatest judgment and greatest urgency. And I ask you one more time, do you love God or do you love gold? Do you love God or do you love forgiveness? What do you love more than God? Let's pray together.